0: Hello <laughs> everyone, I'm Dennis. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank Stan for that long introduction. And uh, I'd like to thank Stan and Steve and the committee and everybody responsible for having uh, Libra and myself up. As a matter of fact, I'd like for you to meet Libra. She's over there in the dark somewhere. Stand up, Libra. Yeah. yeah. Up until now, you've had a super Kentucky State convention.
1: <laughs>
0: had some fine speakers. As a matter of fact, my sponsor always says that his sponsor told him, and so he has told me, uh, that i never have to be alone again in Alcoholics Anonymous unless I speak more than an hour. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'm
1: going
0: I'm to try to make sure that doesn't happen tonight. I am. Uh, my home group is the Queen City Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, my sobriety date is February 1st of 1981. That's, uh, that's just some of the stuff I've been taught to do along the way, and I don't think you'll find anything brilliant in, in, in anything I say. It's, I'm just another drunk with a story. However, now, uh, I don't know who's responsible for having me up here, but I'll tell you what, whoever it was knew that I'm kind of opinionated, and, uh, I, I have some opinions, and it's, uh, difficult for me to share my experience, strength, and hope without sharing some of my opinions. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not real smart, but, uh, I figured out quickly that if if you're sober and you got a sponsor and a home group and you're practicing these principles as best you can in your daily life and you're six foot four and black and weigh 250 pounds, you can have an opinion if you want to. It's <laughs> so, I,
1: so I just got
0: I just got one or two, you know. So in my first opinion, i just tell you right off the bat, I believe that I am sober by the grace of a loving God who manifests himself in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe there's a difference. At least for me, there's a difference between the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The old timers used to tell me, and I believe today, They used to tell me that the fellowship would get you dry, but it's the program that gets you sober. Another opinion I have is this. I just didn't make a lot of progress in Alcoholics Anonymous until I began to work the steps. I am one that believes that I can't get what the promises suggest I'll get unless I do what the fifth chapter suggests I do. Now, it might have worked other ways for other people, but it didn't work that way for me. I wasted a lot of time in alcoholics and As a matter of fact, I wasted a lot of time watching the old-timers. I didn't like them. (laughs) I didn't think they liked me. They always got to the back of the room there on Paisley Street in Greensboro, and they got those good, soft, halfway-house furniture seats, you know, and (laughs) sit in the back of the room. And uh, they were quiet. They didn't seem to be worried about the bill collectors calling and the wife complaining and the boss wondering when I was going to show up to work and stuff like that. These guys were serene. And uh, I spent a lot of time watching them watch me. (laughs) They didn't mess with you too much back then until they were sure that you wanted this thing. You know, and some of these guys were old. Some of these guys were 40 and 50 and 60 years old. They were old. (laughs) Some of them had been sober so long that they had a little grease spot on the wall back there where they had been sitting up against
1: it.
0: You could tell when one was missing. And there. now there, I guess they had memory problems, too, because all of them had names like Slick, Stick, Bob, Bill, Jack. You know, one syllable names. Didn't take a whole lot to remember them. Old folks. And, uh.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Sure you yeah, sure do. <laughs> do my Elvis impression now, as you can hear me. But anyway, these guys were just bad to hurt your feelings. Now, I'm going to tell you the secret of this thing. If, if you don't want to be miserable, stay away from them old-timers, man. They'll hurt your feelings. <laughs> if you don't want to get sober, stay away from them. They'd say things like, boy, if this program ain't working around your kitchen table, it ain't working around this AA table either. Man, how'd they know that? It's like they knew me. <laughs> and one night, we were complaining about the highway patrol and our wives and our bosses, how much trouble we'd been in with the law. And this old guy, they know every once in a while they'd say something profound, you know. And he said, you know, I ain't been caught drinking and driving since I quit drinking. Ooh, man.
1: That is profound.
0: I had never connected the two. I just thought people picked on me a lot. I remember after I uh, I went out and drank again. They call it relapse these days. Back then, they call it getting drunk. And, uh, and, uh, I, uh, I showed back up. And this guy had had a two syllable name. His name was Wimpy. He said, Boy, you've been around a while now, ain't I Yeah, I've been around a while. He said, Well, you ought to have two or three months of survive, I said, No, I just got two weeks. I, I had a slip. He said, Slip, you can't slip off something you ain't got. You know, they, 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 you, know, they you
1: know
0: compassionate people like that, you know. But these compassionate guys begin to love me in a way I, I hadn't been loved like this before. These guys loved me enough to tell me the truth. They were not intimidated by my size or my position. They began to love me. hadn't been loved like that before. These guys outlined a program of action for me, and they sent me they just they, back then they didn't just say, "Don't drink and go to meat." They said, don't drink, and they told you exactly what meetings to go to. You know why. They show up at those too, you know. And these guys, i tell you, they just had a way about them. They were serene. You know, they were. Sometimes I'd watch them. They start, they sleep in the meetings. Or they appear to sleep, you know. They, they start reading, they read the tools. And by the time they read the tools, sometimes these guys just be snoring, you know until I said something dumb, and then all of them woke up at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> then they start asking those questions that they already knew the answer to. Like, boy, who told you that? Now, I don't know about you, but when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was smart. Nobody tell me anything. I just knew stuff, you know. you know. I understand the Internet. I've had built-in Internet for years, you know. I just... I just <laughs> I just get knowledge from nowhere. It just comes to me. I just, I just wake up and I'm brilliant, you know. Then they say, uh, "Can you find that in the big book?" Well, obviously, as smart as I am, you don't need a big book, you know. And then the third question: Boy, who's your sponsor? I ain't got a sponsor. Why am I going to go out? And deliberately get somebody to tell me what to do. (laughs) I don't like being told what to do. Besides, I got a wife. That's enough, you know. (laughs) uh,
1: uh, uh,
0: So I start going to these meetings. They have me going to, they only let me go to one discussion meeting. One discussion. And if I have a choice today, I don't. Go to many discussion meetings, but if I go to discussion meetings, it's going to be on the steps or the book. Back in our way, back down south, they have what they call general discussion meetings. I don't go to general discussion meetings. I'm afraid I might develop general sobriety. I don't want any of that stuff, you know. I'd like for my sobriety to be based on the 12 steps of alcoholics. No, the only people I know that are doing this thing the way I like to see it done, living like I want to live, are those people That live a life based on the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I started going to these meetings, and in just a short time, I began to know the ultimate truth, and that is that I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't like it, but I knew I belonged. I didn't know anything about the steps. Didn't want a sponsor. Didn't know anything about alcoholism, but I knew I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. And therefore, that's how my recovery began. Well, I'm a country boy. I'm from Cleveland County, North Carolina. I was born on a 13-acre cotton farm down there. Now, I don't know what that has to do with alcoholism, but i tell you, picking cotton don't help alcoholism a whole lot, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I instinctively began to have trouble. Well, first of all, I knew, I just felt different. I just never felt comfortable in my own skin, you know. And I instinctively knew that I belonged to, I was in the wrong family. Uh, I was supposed to be born to some rich Jewish family from the Bronx, New York. (laughs) And and here I am on this cotton farm. Uh, I had five sisters and a brother, you know, and and uh, so a lot of my time was spent around girls. And uh, I was just scared of everything. Now I couldn't tell you I was scared. I was just scared. I remember one of the first things I remember is using a inside toilet at my Aunt True Love's. You know, I didn't know what to do with that thing, you know. And But Mom, you know, Mom carried the girls in first. Carried Janice in first. Now, evidently, she flushed that thing before Janice got off of it because Janice came running out with her panties around her ankles, and I didn't have to use the bathroom no more.
1: <laughs> All
0: right. Yeah. So I've done a lot of those things that big boys don't do, you know. And then... I had two sisters that were skipped a grade in school. They started school in the second grade. And I'm born between these sisters. And I'm not doing anything in school but expecting to get skipped anytime, you know. (laughs) See, I just didn't get lazy when I started drinking. I didn't get lazy in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always been lazy, (laughs) physically lazy academically lazy, mentally and emotionally lazy. After I got here, I found out I was spiritually lazy. Because after I got here, I wanted what you have, but I didn't want to work for it. I didn't want to work these steps. I didn't want to have to go through the pain. I didn't want to have to go through the search. I just wanted it to happen because I was showing up. Well, I started wearing glasses when I was five years old. More problems. See, I realized uh, now I've got one of those eyes that are uh, it does what it wants to sometimes. You know, I, I look up, it look back down, you know. <laughs> I look to the right, it look back over there, you know. I was drinking liquor, that's the first thing that used to get drunk on me was that eye, you know. And,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, some little short guy in the bar saying, do that again. I said, what? You know, I, I didn't do anything, you know. So here I am. I'm wearing these welfare glasses, you know, and old brown welfare glasses with the loose hinges and the hooks on the ears. You know, I, I still couldn't see. You know, he's looking over one and under the other one.
1: <laughs> and then,
0: and then Dad was too cheap to pay fifty cent for a real haircut. Bought him some of those Sears and Roebuck clippers. Grandpa had gave him a can kind of. A whole set of those squeeze type. You know, I'll tell you what, I was in the army, I was in the army six months before I knew haircuts didn't have to hurt. You know, he'd been pulling my <laughs> pulling my hair out all those years. Dad just never could get it right. One sided haircut. He'd have thicker on one side and thin on the other and try to put a part in it, and get that crooked, and he just put another one in beside it. He didn't care, you know. <laughs> But I'm in bad shape and I ain't but six or seven years old, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, indeed. Well, there's a lot I like about growing up in Shelby, though. One thing I like about growing up in Shelby is my spiritual training. Dad was superintendent of Sunday school. And uh went to church every Sunday. Felt like I lived in church. And, um, I realize now that I sat in the basement of Show Creek Baptist Church, and that's Sunday school, and began to perfect and enlarge the very character defect that would keep me consumed by my illness for years. The first thing I learned to do was manipulate people. I had to, because Dad had long arms and fat fingers, and he could just thump you into a coma, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, kind of like coming out of a block You just come to, you know what I so, I learned how to do what you wanted me to do, say what you wanted me to say, act like you wanted me to act until you quit looking. Then I did what I wanted to do. Of course, I got thumped a lot, but you know, I just did it again. The other thing I learned to do is memorize stuff. I learned how to memorize those Bible lessons, quote a little scripture. Those old women just love that. that you've got a fine son. I said, ain't he though? Tell him about it, you know. <laughs> Well, I realize now that that ability to manipulate people, and that and that good memory, my worst liabilities today. You know, I've been around AA long enough now where people come into the dance. We hadn't seen you in a while. Where you been? Well, I've been around. How you doing? Doing okay. You know, know that I need to talk to my sponsor. Know I got some stuff going on. Need to talk to somebody about. It, and he's right onto to my seat. And you know, it doesn't take long to memorize parts of the Twelve and Twelve and parts of the Big Book. I mean, you. Uh, heard it read tonight. It doesn't say, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly memorized our book? It's, you know, it's followed the path. You know, I just never wanted to do anything. Yeah. Well, you know, schools generated about 1968, 69 or somewhere in there, and up to that time we'd gone to a segregated school. But you know, the South was a little different back then. Uh, back then, you know, Blacks and whites worked on the farm together. We played together. We did everything except went to church and school together. And some of us even went to church together. So the school's integrating and I'm beginning to have mixed feelings about this. See, I'm afraid that I can't won't be accepted by my black friends because I get along with my white friends and vice versa. I just had friends. So here I am, 12 or 13 years old and I don't even know I'm supposed to hate white people, you know. And, and, uh, if you get that old one, don't hate white people, it's about too late, you know, it's
1: hard to learn.
0: But we had an end of the school party that year. That was our last year in a segregated school, and I found out that I was even different from black people. First thing I realized that I couldn't dance.
1: <laughs> and, uh,
0: uh, worse than that, I didn't even understand the music, you know. <laughs> they were listening to Mark Rees and the Vandellas, the Temptations, the Gladys Knight in the Pits. Little Jerry Butler. Man, I didn't know anything about that stuff. I've been laying in the bathtub on Saturday night, listening to a country mu- music station out of gas South Carolina.
1: <laughs>
0: I've been listening to Buck and Buckaroo, and, you know, <laughs> Weldon and Jennings, and Conway Twitty and the Twitty Birds. <laughs> Merrill Haggard and the Strangers.
1: <laughs>
0: so, yeah, I am. I'm, and you know, I noticed something else. You know, the black guys from Holly Oak Park had cool walks, you know, and it, when, when, we get about 13 years old and we get a little different out here. We just walk a little bit, you know. And,
1: and see,
0: I see, I didn't have that. I've been pulling that cotton sack for 13 years and it took the dip out of my hips.
1: And, uh, and uh, so now,
0: I'm 13 years old,
1: and I'm having
0: my first major crisis.
1: I'm
0: a soul brother, and I don't have soul. And uh, I'm black, and I ain't cool. But that summer, I found something that would do the trick. Me and my friend found some of his grandfather's liquor. I think it was Old Crow. And we laid out there in the corn crib and drank grandpa's liquor. And I got that burning sensation in my throat. It went down to my navel, and my knees started tingling. I'll tell you, I just felt better that day than I had felt in my life. I began to laugh at some of my own jokes.
1: <laughs> you know.
0: And uh, we went down and hid up under the plum bushes between the church and the house there. And we enjoyed that grandpa's liquor. And we talked about what we'd do if those uh, Brentley girls came over the hill. And they didn't come over the hill, and we didn't get to do it. Matter of fact, I'm glad they didn't come over here because I didn't know how to do it. And, <laughs> and that, we are before that day was over. I knew I had to have me some more of that stuff. Didn't know how to get it. Didn't know, but you know, I got on the internet that day. <laughs> I got me some information. It just came to me. I woke up. A little short time after that, and I knew how to make wine. I had never made wine in my life. Knew nothing about making wine. And uh, I'm just a good old North Carolina wino. Nothing, nothing special about me. Uh, I ain't done enough drugs to be called a drug addict, you know. Uh, but I'll tell you, that drinking wine is just natural to me. It's just natural as playing basketball. Just natural. I, uh, I like hearing a good old wino story sometimes. It's just like, to me, it's like hearing the Star Spangled Banner, you know? It makes me know I'm at home. It makes me proud to be American. But anyway, <laughs> I, I bought up me some berries. We moved off the farm then, scared our sisters so they wouldn't tell it. And, and uh, I bought up two mason jars full, or whatever this was. And I just couldn't figure out how to get the alcohol in it, but I knew, I instinctively knew that alcohol won't get in it. Unless it's in the dark. And they call that fermentation. Darkest place I knew was a hole in the backyard. And I I dug my hole and buried those two mason jars. We can sit on the back porch for about five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I said, it's ready
1: now.
0: (laughs) Took me a while to drink it, but I finally got it down. But I was disappointed. I was disappointed. I didn't get the feel. So I had to think a little bit more. I got a little more information from the internet.
1: <laughs>
0: Poured me a little rubber, rubbing alcohol in that last
1: one.
0: And, uh, and Now that one never didn't produce a high, but I'll tell you what, it gave me the worst case of gas I ever had in my life.
1: <laughs> I,
0: I don't know about this, this is alcohol thing, but I'll tell you what, I've been blessed in a number of areas. One of the things I was blessed into, my alcoholism progressed rapidly. I am just one of those people that cannot drink. I entered high school on a college preparatory track expecting to play basketball and expecting to go to college. I drank myself out of the athletic program in, in two years. I drank myself off a school bus route in a year in 19 days. drank myself from a college preparatory track to a vocational track, from vocational to general, and barely finished high school, laying out, drinking wine, begging teachers to pass me. The first time I was confronted with my alcoholism was in my last two weeks of high school. I was confronted four times in my last two weeks of high school. The first person to confront me with my drinking was a lady named Lois Sahl, my English teacher. Back then, they knew your parents, knew your sisters. They didn't just knew your family. And she said, Dennis, I think you have a drinking problem. And she took me out in the hallway and showed me my attendance record. Showed me my work and said, Dennis, you smell like alcohol right now. But what do the teachers know? You drank one beer, and they think you're alcoholic. (laughs) But you know, the next three people that said anything about my drinking were 17 years old just like me. And the first one was Sylvia Spears. She just said, Dennis, I think you're alcoholic. Now, I didn't mind having a drinking problem, but now she's calling me alcoholic. (laughs)
1: That's
0: a bad thing. It's all right to be a wino, but not alcoholic. That's a disease, you know. And, uh, and then there was Linda Lowe. Linda Lowe actually penned in my annual. Dennis Nance, you're a nice guy. Stay off the booth and everything will be okay. You know, it's hard to explain stuff like that to your parents when they read that
1: annual.
0: And then there was Janice Morgan. Janice Morgan is so honest, so blunt, so truthful that she still ain't married today. You know. <laughs>
1: right,
0: you know. Hey, said, uh, Janice Morgan actually pinned in my annual. Dennis Nance, someday reality will hit you in the face and you won't know what to do. You know, it took me some time in Alcoholics and alcoholics to
1: appreciate that.
0: It took me some time in alcoholics to learn that, that reality for me is being aware of my alcoholism. Continuous aware of my alcoholism and living within the context of this program. 24 hours at a time. That's that reality. Boy, I drank for 10 more years after that. You know, I often say that my illness of alcoholism for me is kind of like having body over, you know? When the guy that's stinking finds out he's stinking, everybody has known for a long time, you know? <laughs> and, you know, that's the way it was for me. I drank for 10 more years, and during that time, I got married, spent eight years in the Army, done a lot of stuff. You know, I, I uh at that time I was just mad at everybody. I, and uh, Mom and Dad, and, and Mom had told Mom, especially, Dennis, you're never going to get in the army because your eyes are too bad. I went to see my local recruiter, and I was on the bus that Monday morning. But I was just full of resentment. Now, I didn't know that back then. I just didn't know I was mad. I just knew I just hated. You know, I hated my parents for loving me. I hated my parents for giving me the things that any responsible parent would want to give their kids an education. A good spiritual foundation. Good work ethic. And that's why I joined the army. I wanted to get them back for loving me. And I got home that day and dad was sitting on the front porch. I said, Dad, I joined the army. He said, that's good. You ain't doing nothing else. Go tell your mom. I mean, can't even hurt the guy's feelings, you know? can't hurt the guy's feelings. But I knew I could hurt mom. Mom, I joined the army. She started crying, Dennis. No, you didn't. And man, I said, I went back to my bedroom and sat there and listened to her cry. I was teaching to mess with me, you know. I enjoyed myself. And two weeks later, I was down at Fort Jackson, hollering and crying myself. I was in bad <laughs> shape, you know. I, you know.
1: And,
0: so I spent a half or two in Vietnam and two in the 212 group. Uh, Forty months in Germany on the Czechoslovakian border. And did my last two years as a drill sergeant got married after I came back from Vietnam and Libra and I had already had a son and we went out to Fort Seal, Oklahoma and began to do unknowingly what alcoholic families do. Fuss, fight, drink. And you know a lot of times when you say fight people think you're having just heavy arguments. I'm talking about fights. I'm talking about bopping each other across the head you know. <laughs> and uh, the thing I remember vividly about the United States Army experience is everybody loved Libra. Everybody loved the kids. Leaving Germany, Libra and the kids had friends. Nobody knew me. I had been drunk for 40 months. Leaving Germany in 1977, all of our debt was paid off. We came back to the United States. It was a pretty good tour. I had one last tour to do as a drill sergeant. There in uh, Fort Seal, Oklahoma, and didn't know at the time that I'd be getting out, but I did get out. And during that time on real-time status, my alcoholism progressed to the point that I drank wine exclusively. I worked myself to the top shelf stuff. I became a connoisseur. I was thinking stuff like Night Train and Mad Dog and Thunderbird. you know. And, and, you know, uh, For a long time, I used to go in the grocery store and just walk by and look at it, you know. Uh, I spent I had a lot of invested in the Night Train,
1: uh,
0: uh, uh, company. And anyway, I uh, after that two-owned drill sergeant status Libra didn't want me. The Army was going to send me to Korea just to get rid of me, And I knew that. But truth is, I was up for two discharges at the same time. One from my marriage and one from the Army. And <laughs> so we bought Libra back in North Carolina. I went back out in Oklahoma and I did my last 45 days in Oklahoma by myself and I began to get some idea then of just who and what the problem really was. You know what I found out? I found I was just as miserable without leaving those kids as I was with them. But I knew I could drink with authority with them guys, And I drank like I wanted to drink. And I woke up in places I had never been. People I didn't know. I woke up with some people so bad that you get up and ease on out the door before they get up, you know. Bad shape. Coming back in 1977, we didn't know anybody, anybody, and within two years, we were absolutely bankrupt. Up until that time, I had a house in Oklahoma and had more land in Shelby, North Carolina, pretty prosperous, and I made rank real rapidly in, in the Army. For some reason, they just like big belligerent drunks, and I made rank fast. And But here it is, 1979, and I'm getting out kind gentleman kept that house from going into foreclosure. And I salvaged forty three hundred dollars. I think no, I think it was forty one hundred dollars out of a twenty-one thousand dollar house. Didn't leave thirteen hundred dollars of that money and woke up out of what I know to be now my first recognizable blackout in a place called Hobart, Oklahoma, driving that car around in the edge of a wheat field. Absolutely broke. Don't know where that money went. And that was the basis for many an argument in our household until we had made some progress in AA and al respectively. We didn't know anything about blackouts. So I came back in North Carolina like a good drunk supposed to, drinking wine and writing bad checks. And uh leaver wants to know where the money is, I can't tell. her. She has a house in Greensboro, she leaves, and uh, I get another car and follow. You know, if you're going to leave me, I'm going to see you do it, you know. Libra got a job. I applied for one job a day, and if they didn't hire me, my next stop was the liquor store. I didn't have time to mess around. I'm a businessman. You know? (laughs) And eventually, I was hired at a local prison unit. And I didn't know it at the time, but that local prison unit was a mental health satellite. They had pre-sentence diagnostic people there. They had psychiatric services. they They had people there so crazy, they didn't even know what they were in prison for. I come in drunk on first shift. They put me on second shift. I mean, drunk on second shift? Second shift was a little different, though. You actually came to work and got drunk while you was at work. But they put me on third shift, and that's really what I wanted. That way I could drink all day and work all night and maximize my time awake, you know. And But I started seeing little fuzzy things in the dormitory at night. For some reason, nobody else could see them. I guess my eyesight was better than everybody else. <laughs> I didn't think that had anything to do. I didn't correlate that to my drinking, you know, but you couldn't. They had little fuzzy balls. you see them out of the peripheral, you know. You couldn't. They'd get gone by the time I caught them, you know. They, they, you well, know, you know, these crazy people signing petitions and writing grievances trying to have me fired, you know, just don't appreciate me, November of 1980, I was invited home for a Thanksgiving dinner, and unknowingly, didn't know it, but my my mother and my sisters had become concerned about getting me in a place because they thought something had happened to me in Vietnam that made me drink like this. And I I think most I think it did. I I was about six months behind on wine. I hadn't caught up yet, (laughs) and um, they asked me about church or God or drinking or something, and I Got an argument that they ain't cussed them out. The only way to win those arguments is leave. And I woke up, in what I know now will be my second recognizable blackout, headed north on 85 out of Charlotte. And I had that night. I think that moment of clarity we hear a lot about now, Alcoholics I remember that back in 1976 in Germany, we had gotten a letter from home from several people about my wife's uncle, Dan, who had gotten sober in this strange thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, he was the town drunk when we were growing up, and uh, they suggested that I might want to look into that deal. Now, my thinking was, you know, I don't know how they caught him, but they've got him. And uh, so here I'm coming back to the States, and I've got to dodge the Army, my wife, the Highway Patrol. And these Alcoholics Anonymous people. And you didn't know who they were. I figured they was hiding behind the liquor store, you know, trying to catch people.
1: <laughs> to go in, give
0: them a little wine. Jump on you, take your wine, throw you in the trunk, you know. And,
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: just not sure about this thing, you know. So my thinking, you know, this, when we, I remember coming home and Dan, who used to be the town drunk, was now employed. I think he was dating but not getting married. He had moved from Shelby to the Chapel Hill area. Imagine that, working with the university community. I said, well, when I get back to Greensboro, I'll ask Dan. Uh, I'll call Dan, ask him about this thing called alcoholism. But I got back to Greensboro, I said, well, you know, I can quit. I can quit. I don't need to ask Dan anything. I thank God it already came into my life. The miracle of recovery had unknowingly begun. And Dan dropped by that afternoon. Dan, make yourself at home. Dan did. Dan could lay down and go to sleep anywhere. Still can't. (laughs) And I went out to check my car. And on my way back in, I looked in Dan's car. And in the back windshield, he had the big book there. Old faded out big book. You could barely make out Alcoholics Anonymous on it. And I checked Dan's car door. If his car door had been unlocked, I'd have stole that book. But I went back in and asked Dan, Dan, tell me about this thing called alcoholism. And Dan talked for what seemed like two hours then, probably no more than ten minutes. And finally he said, Dennis, if I dial a number, will you talk? I said, Big Dan, if you just shut up, I'll talk. You know, I, I, <laughs> tell me what I got to do, you know. and I figured Libra's going to leave me and all that stuff. She had already gave me that, I'm not paying bills, I'm not doing this speech. And... uh so that Monday morning, uh, I went down to a place called, some counseling agent, not sure what it was, talked to a guy named James. James was a strange guy, black guy, neatly grown, had a tie. The thing that impressed me is he had tan shoes and his socks and his pants matched. it had been a long time since my socks and pants matched, you know. And he gave me a little test, I passed his test and but he talked freely about his alcoholism. He talked about neglecting his family, being locked up, not going to work, drinking uncontrollably. But man, I'm not telling anybody anything about me. I'm a good southern Baptist. I tell you, I ain't telling nothing about it. i tell it on you, but I ain't telling on me. <laughs> but I wanted out of there, and I was uncomfortable. And before I could get out of there, he said, Dennis, if you're going to stay sober, you're going to need this book. Brand new book. Yeah, that's what I want so I could work this program, read the book, work the program at home and not have to make meetings like you poor people because after all, I was not that bad. And then a little lady named Rosalie asked me "Would my wife and my kids come in from counseling. Man, I knew they would. But I didn't want them to because my kids, I think they were, I think six and eight or either five or seven and uh, you have to watch kids that, when they're that young. Kids that young, if you're not careful, they'll tell the truth on you, you know, and you know, I didn't want people telling the truth on me. Leave me, went to a couple of counseling sessions and went right into al Things changed around the house. <laughs> Almost immediately. You got right smart mouth. You know, she said stuff like, on Monday night, try to pick a fight with me. She say. Dennis, I'm going to the Al-Anon meeting. If you want to go to AA or anywhere else, you need to make arrangements for the kids or take them with you. It's about time you do that. You know, you're their father. i say, Well, wait a minute. she just get in the car and leave.
1: <laughs>
0: Sometime later on. they said, Well, Dance, I, I want to go to Bonnie Dillon. I said, What is that? She said, It's Al Anon retreat. I said, Well, how much does that cost? And she'd tell her. I said, Well, leave. We can't afford that. She said, I can't afford not to. And leave, you know, no discussion. <laughs> So I get mad. I start hanging around the back of these AA meetings. I like meetings like this. Big meetings where everybody looking one way. And the coffee pot and the donuts on the back. So I sit back there and drink the coffee, eat up the donuts. And right between A and me and the Lord's Prayer, magic happens. Six foot full black man disappeared.
1: <laughs>
0: I didn't want you telling me keep coming back and love it on me and stuff. I didn't want to be there in the first place. But after a while I begin to feel sorry for you. I begin to understand this thing. You guys powerless over alcohol in your life with unmatched. See, I'm just powerless over money. Bill collectors won't leave me alone. Highway patrol picking on me. Wife won't keep her mouth shut. I just can't drink wine in peace. Couldn't take step two because it implied that I was insane. I went on to step three which I avoided, it had God in it. My concept of God had totally changed from that loving God I had been taught. And I thought this guy was just out to get me. I thought he was up there with a big fly swath just watching me run from liquor house to liquor store and he'd catch me right in the middle of the interstate and whap, that was it. I had to start, you know, I didn't get skipped through school like my sisters did, but I skipped myself through way out for Hawks and Novels. I had to start on my fourth step. And <laughs> somebody had mentioned something about sponsorship, but I just couldn't find anybody to fit the bill. Couldn't find anybody black enough. Couldn't find anybody cool enough. Couldn't find a Vietnam veteran. Couldn't find anybody that was married. And if you got close, I'd say, well, have you had an IQ test lately? You know. I couldn't find anybody good enough to sponsor me. So I had to do the most logical thing I knew to do and I had to sponsor myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Easiest time I've ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: <laughs>
0: that built-in sponsorship is the deal, man. It's i I didn't have to go to meetings unless I wanted to go to meetings. I didn't have to read a big book. I was reading stuff like Playboy, Esquire, GQ, you know. See, when you sponsor yourself, you don't have to worry about the answering machine being full when you get home. Nobody calls. If you're tired of loving you, tired of people loving you, trying to help you sponsor yourself for a while, life is good. I was sitting in a meeting one night, and I got a little more information from nowhere. So, Dennis, you know, since you can't drink, there may be some other things you can use. Oh, That's a big decision for an old drunk like me. You just don't go out and start using alternate substances. I said, man, I better talk to my sponsor about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, me and my sponsor ended up 140 miles from home two weeks later, drunk and naked up in Rutherford County. good sponsorship, you know. <laughs> on February 1st of 1981, I've done the only thing I am positively sure I've done right since I've been in alcoholics Anonymous. I came back. And these old boys are sitting there. You know what they said? Boy, we've been waiting on you.
1: Man, I hated you. <laughs>
0: then there was old women. They, they, that night, they let me in the group, see. That night, they had a little meeting after the meeting, and they invited me to the meeting. You know, that's because I was the subject of the meeting, you know. <laughs> that night, they talked to me in a language I understood. They asked me about prayer and meditation. They asked me a lot, a lot of questions I didn't want to ask. I remember James saying, Dennis, how do you expect to stay sober even in those five minutes if you don't use this program, the people in it? And the the God of your understanding. He said, it's obvious to me that you can't keep yourself sober. That night, I left that meeting with the basis for my recovery. I woke up this morning with the same foundations for my recovery. Since that night, I know that Dennis Nance can't keep Dennis Nance sober. I know that Dennis Nance can't replace his alcohol with his unmoved offering chemical. chemicals. I know that Dennis Nance is going to have to affect the relationship with God as he understood him or as he misunderstood him. But that was going to have to happen. And the thing I hated the worst is I knew that Dennis Nance was going to have to follow instructions from a sponsor. Someone that was reasonably successful to staying sober 24 hours at a time. That night I began to use prayer and meditation. I'd go in the bathroom. flush the commode, run some water in the sink, turn on the shower, get on the side of that bathtub and say, God, thanks for keeping me sober, because that what I often go to bed.
1: <laughs>
0: Did that for about six months. They issued me a sponsor, gave me Ivy. Ivy was unemployed, unemployable, lived with his mama, had been sober 18 months, last drunk month was on wintergreen alcohol, and as soon as I got away from Ivy, I said, I- Ivy wouldn't let me complain about my family, wouldn't let me complain about my job, he insisted that I read the big book and other AA literature, had my whole son visor stuff with that stuff. And as soon as I got back at these guys, I said, look here, this Ivy guy is crazy. I said, well, "Why you got him? You crazy?" And, and these guys got busy. I didn't have any money then. I filed a Chapter 13 wage a bankruptcy. That's a protection plan where you pay these people back the money with court protection, so they can't mess with you. But these people insisted that I go to meetings. They insisted that I give when I. They insisted that I work these steps. I've been with me from step one to step three and they shipped me over to a guy named Lou. Lou was a mild-mannered gentleman who'd been sober more than 20 years. And he worked in the field of alcoholism and after he worked with drunks all day, he worked with me through these steps in his apartment at night. That's how they loved me. And Lou issued me by instructions for my fourth step. I didn't understand any of this stuff. I just did what I was told. And that's a good way for this old drunk to be. I don't have to understand stuff. Just do what I'm told. And I remember taking my fifth step and really feeling like that day that I probably didn't have to drink anymore. If I did what I was asked to do. And that has proven true today. Well, do workers with me through my nice step, and he shipped me over to A.D. Now, I've been through so many people, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe they just want to get rid of me. They think I'm going to get one of them drunk, you know. <laughs> and A.D. did the most loving thing I think one drunk can do for another. A.D. said, he said, Dennis, you don't have to make meetings on Wednesday nights. I said, man, that's a relief. He said, I want you in my apartment every Wednesday night until I say different. Oh, man, that's tough, you know. But A.D. taught me what he knew of the book, Alcoholics and A.D. insisted that I work through these steps again. A.D. would not allow me to complain about my wife. I remember A.D., I would about leaving one day. He took me on a tour of his apartment. He opened my room and said, who you see in there, boy? I said, nobody. He said, that's good. Take me to the bathroom. See anybody in there? Nobody. Nobody in there. He said, "Sonny, you know it's leaving. lonely living by yourself. I said, I don't talk about the book a while. Man. A.D. taught me how to pray. Imagine that old Baptist boy that had been told to pray all of his life, was shown how to pray in Alcoholics Anonymous. A.D. showed me how he started his day with prayer and meditation, showed me how he ended his day with prayer and meditation, and insisted that I follow the instructions on page 86 and 87 in doing that. Sometime later on, I remember Luther coming in from Alcoholics coming in from al and said, Dennis, I've been saying I'm going to do something about my, something I haven't been doing, I'm going to start doing it tonight. And Libra got on the side of that bed and prayed. And since that time, we've been able to start our day and end our day with prayer and meditation, sometimes together, sometimes separately. But it's not a big deal nowadays. The kids gravitated, they just gradually went right into our team. And you know, I saw our kids go from little nail-biting discipline problems I saw Dennis come to, a, Dennis Jr. become a reasonably good student, exceptionally gifted in math. But you know, he's his as deadest as son, and he does just as little as he can get by with, and escaped college. Michelle, on the other hand, became an roll student, and went to college, and recently completed college. Lever went back and furthered her education, and you know something? Slowly but surely, my family life and marriage life became the life that I saw you have in Alcoholics Anonymous. Slowly but surely we began to treat each other with love and kindness and tolerance that we had learned in AA and Al Anon and Alatine. You know, I believe that AA, I believed a long time that AA could heal the drunk from the inside out. I know now that Al Anon and Al do likewise for the family members of alcoholics. And I am so grateful for that. You know, I never would have believed. They said, Dennis, you can have anything you want. I never would have thought life would be like it is today. To have a meaningful job. To be surrounded by a group of recovering alcoholics. And you know, sponsoring people these days. I remember back when A.D. worked me through the steps. And I remember him letting me go back to meetings on Wednesday nights. He said, boy, let me tell you something. He said, you know, if you stay sober, you're going to sponsor people. He said, if you're going to sponsor people, you need to sponsor them like you were sponsored. If you can't give them what you've been given, if you don't teach them the importance of working the steps, if you don't teach them what you know of the big book of alcoholics, knowledge, If you don't teach them how to implement these principles in their daily life, he said, Dennis, you may be cheating them out of the only chance they ever have at recovery. So if you can't do that for them, then get them to somebody who can I never thought that day would come. But the day has come that I've had to do that. Moving back to Charlotte, I'm just surrounded by drunks all the time. I'm grateful for people who love me enough to keep me busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. My sponsor, I know, volunteers me for stuff. I just do it. I don't say anything to him about
1: it. Wouldn't do any good. He
0: just volunteered me for some more stuff. One of the joys of my life today are my granddaughters. I used to tell my kids, and you know, especially when my kids got into our team, you know, these kids were smart enough and creative enough to tell me when my attitude was bad sometimes. See, I'm not one of these guys that just come to AA and everything was okay. I still have uh, uh, the marriage problems, the school problems, the kid problems, the Money problems, all the problems everybody else has. It's just that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous gives me a systematic way, a way of living, if you will, to work through those problems a day at a time. The problems become non-problems. Half of the stuff I used to argue about, not even worth mentioning these days. I used to tell my kids, I look here, when you guys have kids, you make fun of me, tell them I got a bad attitude, when you guys have kids, they're going to be like me. I got those three granddaughters. You know, all that information that just comes from nowhere? I share it with them.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: they share some with me. This weekend, last weekend, my oldest granddaughter. She had learned a new word. Nine years old. Learned all those new words in school. Coming down the road, two younger kids go to sleep. She's still up. And somehow her and her grandmother start talking and she's learning new words that, Papa, I need to know what a word is. What what kind of words do you learn? She said, You're not going to laugh at me? No, I'm not going to laugh at you. She said, Papa, what's cleavage?
1: Cleavage. (laughs)
0: I said, I don't know, but it sounds like a grandmother question. You know, and then, and then the middle granddaughter looks like Libra, runs that mouth a little bit like Libra. She wants to know the hows and whys, and she's focused on what's fair. She doesn't do it unless she just really has to do it. We were in church one Easter. Naomi always sits on my left side. She thinks she can get away with anything when Papa's around, and she's hanging around there, crawling up under the pews, playing with my Bible, pulling on my necktie. And you know how black churches are. Our teachers, our preaching gets our service a little lively, you know, do a little jumping, a little hollering, a little shouting. Preacher reaches the climax of his sermon, and Naomi stops and starts listening, and she says, "Papa," and he always asks you those embarrassing questions. Out loud. She says, Papa, is God gonna come today? Says, oh man. I, says, I don't, I don't think so. I hope not, but I don't think so. She started right back playing, you know? She lives a day at a time, you know, if he ain't coming today. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: then there's Inez. Inez is left-handed, quite creative, and quite verbose. It's like she started talking before she started walking. And she says good stuff. I think they've done a case study on me. You know, by the time, usually by Saturday night, I'm worn out. I'm, I've had all the grandkids I can handle. And I'll go lay down on the bed, and they'll come and check on me about every 15 minutes in rotation. Um, and Inez comes up, and I wake up one day, and Inez is there with her left hand on her chin. What are you doing, girl? Nothing. And she's grinning. She says, "Paul, Paul, for what?" She says, "I like you, hey girl." She doesn't know it, but her college tuition was paid that day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was good stuff. All of that—the
0: joy of living, happy, joyous, and free—the joy of living that it talks about in a vision for you, working with other drugs. Right? enjoying the family, growing in the likeness of one's creator. I've been able to enjoy that. You know, and, and I think about all the time that I wasted in alcoholic and feeling sorry for myself. Why have I got to quit drinking at 27 years old? Why, I'm never going to have any fun anymore. Why have I got to go to these meetings? Why have I got to chair meetings? Why have I got to drive out of town meetings? Why have I got to have a sponsor? Why have I got to continue to work these steps? And then I think about people who have terminal illnesses, diabetes, cancer, liver disorders, AIDS. If all these people had to do were the things that the programs suggested. just out they would do them without question. If all they had to do was work 12 simple steps, Use the God of their understanding. Acquire sponsorship. Go to meetings on a regular basis. Study, learn, read, and implement the principles of the book. And as soon as we're able, be of service to other people who share that common problem. If that's all they had to do, you couldn't find a place big enough to get them in. And here, I've wasted all this time sitting right in the middle of the solution, complaining about the problem. I think that says a lot about why Dennis Nass needs to be in Lexington, Kentucky, on a good old lake of drinking Saturday night. Thank you all, and God bless you.